Oh, how we doing? We're doing good. How was that? How was the? Uh, how'd you guys feel about the production? JoJo's wild. Uh, hey, today is a special day. Uh, actually, there's a few things I want to announce. First, first of all, uh, today is my mom's birthday, which is pretty sweet. That's pretty cool. Uh, which also made me think of another birthday that's happening. Uh, Maddie Brown's birthday is tomorrow, and she probably wasn't going to let you guys know that. Uh, and so make sure that uh, tomorrow you guys like maybe stockpile all of the apple cider donuts from tonight and just give it to her as a gift for tomorrow because they're better cold, right? Is that good? It's her birthday tomorrow. But anyways, hey, I'm super excited for where we're heading tonight. Uh, this is such a powerful point in the story when we're in Jonah 3. That's actually where you guys can start flipping to is Jonah chapter 3. Uh, when Jonah actually goes to Nineveh. And it's when, like we said earlier, this is where God's character and our sin collide. And we see what actually happens here. And so we're going to be in Jonah 3. And so you can get your Bibles. You can turn there. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Once again, if you're like, I still don't know where it is in the Bible, you can use that table of contents. It's there for a reason. Jonah chapter 3. All right. Now, in honor of God's word, would you guys stand with me as I read this chapter? Guys, we're going to read the whole book this weekend. We're almost there. All right. Jonah chapter 3 starts this way. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the, the king and his nobles, let, there, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with his sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away, his, away from his evil way. And from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Would you guys pray with me? Father, once again, we just pause and remember who you are. Remember that you are with us. You are a God who is present and listening and desires for us to know you. And God, as we look to the story of Nineveh, would we just, would we just be moved to the fact that you care? You care about us. And you care about people who don't know you and you want everyone to know you. So Father, would you make that so abundantly clear tonight as we talk about how you continually are reaching the lost even today? We love you, Father. Pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So I think it was about 13 years ago now, 
13 years ago, there was this story of these two Hungarian brothers, which I don't even know where Hungary is on, on, a, like, on a map. Does anybody know where it is? Like, could you point it out on a blank map? Maybe? Okay. It's around Germany. Perfect. So now we know. Uh, where could, where's Germany on the map? Just kidding. Uh, so uh, these two brothers, they had a bunch of drama with their family. Then their names, maybe it's helpful, were uh, Geza and Zolt Paladi. Geza and Zolt Paladi. These two brothers had a bunch of drama with their family, a lot of falling out, and decided to move out. But unfortunately, they didn't really have anywhere to go. And so these two Hungarian brothers decided that they were just going to go live in caves because that made sense to them. They didn't have any money and they could live in the caves for free. And so that's actually where they lived for many years together, these two brothers, kind of just surviving in the woods. And they lived their life that way until one day there was somebody who came to their cave looking for them. And they were looking for them and they said, hey, we're looking for these two guys. We're looking for Geza and Zolt Pilati. And of course they said, well, well, that's us. What do you, what do you want? You're in our cave. He says, hey, well, uh, you probably haven't heard, uh, but your distant grandmother in Germany actually passed away recently. Uh, And it turns out that most of your family at this point has actually passed away. And so you guys are the next of kin to your grandmother. She didn't leave a will, but that means that all of the inheritance that she left behind comes to you guys. And so, of course, they're curious, like, okay, well, what's it look like for us? How How much is it? She said, well... The reason why I'm here is because it's $7 billion. $7 billion left to these two homeless brothers living in a cave. Guys, $7 billion is so much. If you spent $100,000 every day, it would take you 192 years to spend $7 billion. Like, it is so much money. And just the fact that these guys were living penniless in a cave, and all of a sudden, their whole lives got flipped upside down. Just so much changed dramatically just by the fact that somebody showed up to their cave and said, hey, you now have inherited all of this money. Just imagine that. Like, what would go through your mind? You don't have to say it, but like, what goes through your mind when that happens? It's just baffling going from nothing to having like an unlimited supply. I think that's such a crazy story because I think we just can't wrap our mind around it. Like, if it was like, if it was $10,000, I think every single one of us would faint. But $7 billion is insane. The craziest thing about that is I believe what God offers to every single one of us is far greater than anything those two brothers got. I think what God offers us when we truly have nothing to offer him way outlasts $7 billion. Because you know what? $7 billion isn't going to go with us to, to this next life. It's going to stay behind. It's going to waste away. But what God offers lasts for eternity forever. And it's so much greater. It's a greater inheritance than you could even ask for. So like I said, tonight we're seeing where where sin and God's character collide. And we see when that happens, that when those things happen and we we are willing to, to step into what God has for us, that God changes everything. He changes everything. He makes a huge difference, something that changes our entire trajectory on what we are on. We see that in the book of Jonah, and we see this in our lives. Let's look back at at Jonah chapter 3, what happens with Nineveh. First thing, it starts out similarly to chapter 1. You see that the word of the Lord came to Jonah again and says, Hey, Jonah, now that uh, maybe you learned your lesson, you should go out to Nineveh. You should go to the backyard and you should tell them who I am and that they need to stop doing what they're doing and they need to follow me. 
And it seems like Jonah's like, okay, this time I'm going to go. I'm going to make it happen. He heads that way. And what baffles me is that God actually asks Jonah to do this a second time, right? You would think that God would ask someone to do it that was going to do it the first time. And if they didn't, he would maybe go ask someone else to do it. Okay, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to find someone to do it for me. But instead, he returns back to Jonah and says, all right, Jonah, I'm going to give you another go which is so cool because I see here that his past failure doesn't disqualify him from future faithfulness. Like his past failures don't disqualify him from doing ministry. God actually continues to use him. And we see that Jonah finally does what was asked of him. And he goes into the city of Nineveh, this big city, and he's walking around a three days journey and he's preaching. He's telling everyone, "You you need to change your ways. God is coming towards you. And it's either you turn from him or you turn, you, you turn from him and you deal with the consequences, or you turn to him and receive him. And like we saw with Jojo, he probably just did not expect anything to happen. But then something miraculous happens. In verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Nineveh repents. Nineveh changes their ways. All of a sudden, they recognize their sin. They recognize their heart's reflexes actually against God. And they start lamenting. They start mourning. They're actually broken and sad over their sin. They're finally looking at the mirror and seeing exactly what they should be seeing. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. We're living the wrong way. Jonah, thank you for bringing this message to us because we didn't know. And they begin to change the way that they're living. They worship God in response, and they change the way that they're living. This word repentance, what it literally means, it means to change your mind. Like, to actually have a complete mind shift from one place to another. And so it's this idea of recognizing the direction you're walking is wrong, and turning around and walking the other way. Like, I get the picture of, like, if you're walking in the wrong direction to repent, is to do a 180-degree turn and not just stop there, but actually head back the other direction because you were going the wrong way. And so to repent is to change your mind, to realize, man, what I was doing, what I was all about, was completely wrong. I need to go back the other direction. And we see an entire city do this, so much so that the king actually declares, this is what we're doing. If you are my people, this is what we're doing. We are repenting and turning towards the Lord. Can I highlight another part of this passage that I just think is is so cool? Look at verse 9 with me. You should have your Bible still open. Verse 9. What does the king say? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. How often do we get more sad over the fact that we get caught doing wrong than we are about doing something wrong. I remember uh, in high school, my mom would often give me kind of like arbitrary uh, times that I had to be home. Like just, it would always be different. So like one time I'd have a curfew of midnight and the next weekend I'd ask him like, ah, be home by nine. It's like, last weekend was midnight. You wanna make it eight? And it's like, oh, I guess it's nine. Okay, we're, we're gonna stick to nine. That's fine. And it was just always kind of all over the place. And so, uh, once I had a car and I was driving, uh, I, I would kind of like stretch the time out or maybe forget what time my mom had told me that time, right? I was just like, oh, I'll just, I'll just come home when I want to come home. And my mom always told me that she was like, I'm going to be awake when you get home, so like come see me, come say hello. When I'm, I'll be in bed, but I'll be awake. And she was never awake. She was always sleeping every single time. And so if I, she was ever asleep, I had to go up to her 
and like wake her up and say, hey, mom, I'm home, just to let her know. And if I didn't do that, oh man, I would be in big trouble in the morning. And so every time I would come home late, I would kind of walk in the door knowing my mom's going to be asleep, and I'd go upstairs, and I'd see the clock, and it'd be like anywhere from like 30 minutes to three hours later than where it should be. And I would step in the way of the clock and lean over, and I would, you know that moment when you're about to wake up your parent, and you're like, oh, what's going to happen? And I'd wake her up, and she'd be startled, and of course, just so like disoriented, and look straight for the clock, but she can't see it. It's dark, and she's like, oh, I just can't find it. That's why I'd like trick her, and I'd cover the clock, and she wouldn't see it, and she'd be like, what time is it? And it's like, don't worry about it. Go to sleep. And most times, she would go to sleep and whew, got away with it, but one time, uh, I did not get away with it, and I learned my lesson that, man, uh, if my mom asked me to step out of the way, there was literally nothing I could do in that moment to try to convince her I was there in time. But I just, I, I just think that we so often, we get more upset and more bummed by the fact that we get caught when we do something wrong than by the fact that we actually did something wrong. That is not the case in Nineveh here. I see the, you see the king here that's saying, you know what? We are in the wrong. We are living wrong. We're going to repent, and whatever God does, he does. He is God. We are not. If he relents, great. If he doesn't, then we bear the consequences. I just think that's so beautiful. I think that's so faithful because he's deciding to do what is right no matter what happens to him. They're repenting because they believe it's best, turning from their ways because they think it's what's actually best, not because they don't know if they're going to be punished. But as we learned this morning, the way that God responded is similar to his character. He responded with mercy. He relented punishment from them. The fact that he even sent Jonah in the first place to, to, to this place was an act of God's mercy, and then he offers an opportunity for them to actually be in relationship with him. God completely changes things for Nineveh. Their entire lives are completely shifted from where they were, and they're actually going to start living for him. Because of who God is, he moved towards Nineveh. And because he moved towards Nineveh, everything changed for them. They were able to have a relationship with God, which is such a powerful moment in this chapter. But if we actually take a step back, it leaves us kind of like scratching our heads for a second, because is sin dealt with? Not really. They repented of their ways. They said, you know what? What we've been doing is wrong. I'm going to stop living that way. But sin is still there. Sin runs so deep. It's still in our hearts. It's still our reflex. It's still what comes out of us. And so for Nineveh, sin was still a part of what they were going to be doing. Even though they, they realized they wanted to live towards God, it's so deep in their hearts that it's still stuck in there. The fact is, is repentance in and of itself for anyone is never going to save you. Repentance, just acknowledging living wrong is never going to save you. You're still stuck in your sin. You're just aware of, what, of what's going on in your heart. Something else has to happen. Fact is, is all throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they recognized this idea that, that they needed to, that, that sin required death. And that's why all throughout like the book of Leviticus and the book of Exodus, you're going to see the sacrificial system of what it meant that they would sacrifice animals on behalf of their sin to recognize the wages of sin is death. And so that's why that was happening left and right. 
But we see in Hebrews chapter 10, 4, this is something that's reiterated over and over in different ways, but it says this, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It might be able to say, okay, my sin deserves death, and so this, this bull, this goat is able to like atone for that, but sin still is, is stuck in my heart. And I'm still actually defined by my sin because of what I've done. It's actually separated my relationship with God. Remember when we talked about that last night? That that's what sin does. So something actually needed to change on a bigger scale. Repentance wasn't going to be enough. God actually had to do something greater. And because of who he is, he actually has. In Matthew 12, Jesus uh, starts telling this, this parable to the religious elite. Really, he's telling the, the Pharisees this, uh, this story, uh, these people who, who truly felt like they were pros at what it meant to follow God. And he tells them this story of what actually needs to change for people to have a true relationship with God. Look in verse 33. It should be on the screen. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. I think this picture is so helpful for us. As Jesus is saying, what is in your heart is gonna come out. It's gonna leak. You're gonna have those reflexes that respond to this world. And so if you have a sinful heart, which who does? All of us. Sin is going to leak out left and right. But if you have a good heart, a heart that has been fixed somehow, then good is going to come out. And so now the, the, the solution isn't just trying to clean up our life. It isn't just saying, oh, the things I've been doing is wrong. I'm going to stop doing those things. You need a new heart. You need a heart transplant. You need to be uprooted from what your heart, where, where your life has been. You need to be redefined. Things need to change from the inside out in order for true change to happen. A miracle needs to happen. And Jesus actually alludes to that of what's going to happen in the following verses. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We wish to see a miracle from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to, to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Oh, Jesus is talking about Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is pointing to the fact that what he is up to, what he is there to do, is similar to Jonah, but it's so much better. That like Jonah was in the fish for three days, three nights, that Jesus is going to go to the grave, that he's going to die. And he's going to put his life down, and he's going to be in the grave for three days and three nights. And similar to the fact that the people of Nineveh repented, that all people are going to be invited to repent in a way that's going to be transformative. He's pointing ahead to something that only he could offer, and it's changed history. It's changed eternity. 
In the church, we, we call it the gospel, which literally means the good news. But I don't, I don't want us walking away just thinking this is good news, uh, like your favorite sports team won. This is the best possible news you could ever receive, that anyone could ever receive. This is the best news. And here's what's so awesome about the gospel, is that it changes everything for you. It changes everything. Every last aspect of your life but not just for this life, for eternity. And so I know m- many of us in this room, we've heard messages like this. We maybe even feel like you could, you could predict exactly what I'm going to say word for word. Can I just challenge you if, you, if you know where I'm going the rest of this message, would you be refreshed by what I'm going to say? We each are so forgetful. It's so easy for us to forget how good this truth is. Would we be refreshed and reminded, man, I needed to hear that because I still need Jesus. And maybe if you're sitting there like, okay, I actually already feel refreshed, Tony. I don't, I don't feel like I need that. Would you actually pray then? Would you be praying alongside me, alongside so many others in this room that others would actually hear this, maybe even for the first time, with a fresh set of ears? And then if you don't know this, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I want to ask you this question. What if everything that I'm about to say was true? Just what if? Would you just ask that question with me? If you have no idea what the gospel is, or maybe even you know it, but you've denied it and said, that's not for me, would you just sit with this question? What if there is a creator, God, who really cares about me? What if Jesus is more than a historical teacher? What if I was designed to find my value, my purpose, and my identity in my Savior and my creator? It's the least I can ask from you tonight. It's just ask the question, what if these things are true? What needs to change? What needs to happen if this is true? We're going to walk through the gospel in the book of 1 Peter, uh, which I'll say this, there are like countless passages of scripture, especially in the New Testament, that kind of give you a synopsis, gives you a quick summary of what the gospel is. I'm just looking at one of them. This is in 1 Peter 2, which is towards the end of your Bible. It's going to be up on the screen as well, but 1 Peter 2.22, lots of twos. Talking about Jesus, it said, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God knew we were stuck in our sin, which is why he showed up. Remember uh, this morning we talked about God and Abad, that he came to us and he said, I'm going to be a solution. This is a human problem, and so I'm going to come up as a human solution. I'm going to provide it. And so with that, we see that Jesus, as a man, lived faithfully. Like, that means that Jesus never sinned. Never once. He was perfect. He was faithful. Yes, he was tempted, just like we have been tempted to sin. But he never did. He was faithful, meaning he was sinless, which means that he earned death. The wages of sin are death. Did he sin? No. Did he earn death? No. He was perfect. He was faithful on our behalf. And he continued to teach about who God is because he was, it was talking about himself. And so Jesus, as a man, he shows up and he is faithful and he's uh, the perfect uh, sacrifice for us, that he's showing up as human, but fully God as well. And so he was faithful on our behalf. And that's huge, guys. That's actually so important to understand that Jesus never sinned. Because he never sinned, what he does 
for us is just that much more miraculous. Look at this. Look at this next verse. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is the climax of all of history, that Jesus took our spot on a cross. Now, a cross, it was the the Roman torture device of Jesus's day. Like what it was intended to do was to torture someone for breaking the law. And Jesus, what he did is he willingly was placed on a cross because he was accused of, of blaspheming, of going against God, and he willingly took on the cross saying, you know what, I am not guilty of what I've done, and I'm guilty of no sin, but what I'm doing is I'm offering myself in place for others. And so he bore our cross. When I say that he bore our cross, what that means is that every single person, every single person, the wages of sin is death, every single person who has sinned deserves to die, And so he instead died on our behalf, and not just died, but suffered on our behalf. As a perfect human, he was paying the human punishment for us. But as a perfect God, he was able to be a substitute on our behalf. He was able to offer himself to all, which is why it talks about right here that he was able to offer his perfection, his faithfulness, his righteousness in place for our sinfulness, our brokenness, everything that we had done wrong. And he makes a swap, like the most unfair trade that there's ever possible. Hey, he says, you give me your dirty rags and I will give you my perfect robe. This is an unfair trade, but this is what I'm offering to you. It's so unfair, but it's the way it is. I'm just so blown away by the fact that Jesus doesn't just cancel out your debt. Like he doesn't just say, hey, you owe billions of dollars and we're going to bring you down to zero. But instead, he says, you owe billions of dollars, but I'm actually going to give you an infinite amount of income. I'm actually going to gift you with an inheritance that you don't deserve. You don't just go from, from negative to neutral. You go from negative to positive with God, that we're offered a relationship with him, and death is no more, both spiritual and physical, meaning that your relationship with God is actually restored by what Jesus has done, because sin is no longer what marks and defines you. Therefore, you are no longer defined by death. You actually have a, you're able to have a relationship with God personally. And also the fact that you are going to have life with God forever. It's offered as a free gift and the deal is done. You receive a relationship with God forever. And then verse 25. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, to be honest, sheep are pretty dumb. <laughs> like, sheep need a shepherd. They, have, they need to be directed, otherwise they're going to go the wrong way. They're going to be lost and helpless. And I love that this pastor says, hey, before Christ, you were like sheep. You were wandering away, but praise God that you have a good shepherd that is tender and kind and loves you and is guiding you and cares about you. Do you know that, that Jesus didn't just die on a cross go to the grave, be in the grave for three days and resurrect from the grave just so that we could go to heaven, but so that we could actually have a relationship with God right now. You do not just place your faith in Jesus so that your future is secure. That's part of it, but you also get the joys of being with God now. It changes your life now, that God is with you 
It's better than a get-out-of-jail-free card. You get to have the joys of Jesus right now. And what else do we have to hold on to in this life? What do we have to hold on to? When we really consider, man, in this life, what's going with me? Life is a blink of an eye. We just don't know what it holds. There's this hymn that was written in the late 1800s that I find so powerful about what this means to have a relationship with God, how sweet it is to have a relationship with God. And I think it's just so powerful to even just like put up on the screen for us as we walk through it. Take a look at the screens. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise and to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood, and in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. I am so glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, Savior friend, and I know that thou art with me, wilt be with me to the end. This was written by Louisa Stead uh, back in the late 1800s, right after uh, tragedy struck her life. Uh, She was at the beach with her husband and her four-year-old daughter, uh, and some little boy was drowning, and her husband uh, went to go save him, to try to save him, and he also drowned alongside this little boy. And it just rocked her. Of course, Louisa just lost her husband before her very eyes. And this is how she responded. She wrote this hymn, this song in response. How is that even possible? How is this her response to say, Jesus, you are so sweet? This woman understood that she had nothing else to hold on to in this life. Life is a blink. Life is heavy. Life goes fast. But the fact is that Jesus offers us a hope now when we go through hardships, when we go through suffering And he offers you hope for the future, the fact that we have a life eternal with him. When I first first became a Christian in high school, my life actually wasn't that crazy. You take a look at my my high school life, I mean, I had good grades, I had things together, I had friends, I didn't really have many issues that you think that would make me needy for something. But you know what? When I started going to church and I started seeing scripture and I started to realize I am so much more broken than I thought I was, that's when I realized that I truly needed saving. That I was far more like Nineveh than I wanted to admit because I'd never really considered it. That I was so much more broken than I thought I was and I looked like on paper but God has radically changed my life, my trajectory. The fact that I'm here today is because God called me and he said, I want you to be my son. I want to adopt you in. And the thing is is that God offers relationship now because of Jesus to every single one of you. That you couldn't do it on your own, but you needed him to do something for you. You needed him to do it for you. And here's the thing. Jesus makes so abundantly clear that this gospel message, this best news possible, is not just offered to everyone in a sense of like, you now are saved just because it's happened. He actually says it's for those who believe upon him. That you actually have to believe that he is your savior, that you were in sin, but because of what he has done, he has now offered a way out of your sin. So he is your savior. 
And not only that, but that he is your Lord, that you are saying, God, that Jesus, I want you to be in control of my life. I want you to be the most significant thing in my life. You now are in control. You are my Savior and my Lord. And you believe that in your heart and you confess that with your mouth. You are saved. You have to believe upon him in order for that to happen. There's not a better decision you can make with your life. Not a single better decision that you could ever make. This is the best possible decision you can make. But this, this is actually a gift that is offered to us. So it begs the question, have you actually personally received that gift? Ever? Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus? Why not? If you haven't, why not? Why not tonight? Why not actually commit to following him, accepting what he has done? There's, this, there's no greater time for you to do so than right now. So actually, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm actually going to have everyone just close your eyes and bow your heads. And I, I know that as I, I'm talking and I'm, I'm looking at God's word and talking about it, there are people in this room who are being moved by God. That you know that God is speaking directly to you. And so I'm asking for those of you who have never placed your faith in Jesus. This never happened before and this is your first time that you truly want to commit to following Jesus, that, God, I, I understand I'm a sinner. I need you as my Savior. God, I understand that I'm wayward. I need you as my Lord. If you want to commit your life to Jesus for the very first time, to accept this gospel for the very first time, would you look up? At... Yeah. It's awesome. That's sweet. powerful. Stepping into the kingdom and it's saying, God, I want you to have control of my life. Father, I, I, I pray for this crew right here. God, I, I pray that you would continue to work in this place. And Father, thank you for the fact that you are a God who saves. Thank you for the fact that you truly know every single one in this room and you are working. And God, I do pray that you would move our hearts closer to you in this moment. Lord, I know there are more people in this room who desire to know you, but maybe just are still holding on. God, would you move us towards you? You see, our, our faith, I'm talking to you guys now, our faith is is not meant to be private. Our faith is actually meant to be public. We're called to actually share publicly, man, I'm walking with Jesus, not just because God wants to scare you, uh, but because he actually wants you to be able to be committed in a community, that people can be praying alongside you and supporting you and coming and, and encouraging you. And so with that, I'm actually going to give an opportunity, if you've placed your faith in Jesus for the first time tonight, to stand up. And so would you actually stand up if you've put your faith in Jesus for the first time? Would you stand up boldly? I know it's scary, but if you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, people want to cheer alongside you. They want to be with you. It's a scary thing to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's sweet, buddy. Hey. Hey, guys. 
Hey, stay standing for a sec. I know it's, I know it's really nerve-wracking to be standing in front of a group of people, but I just want to talk to you guys specifically for a second. Uh, scripture makes abundantly clear that when you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, immediately you are made new. You are a new creation. You see in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that you have been made completely new, that your sin is done away with, that you are no longer defined by it. And actually, Galatians 2.20, I switched uh, the words to saying you instead of I, but Galatians 2.20 says, you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. In the life you now live in the flesh, you live by the faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. That is true of those who are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, that is true of you. That's awesome, guys. You guys can sit down. Hey, I acknowledge that many of us in this room are at different places in our faith or even uh, asking many questions. And if God is working in your heart in whatever way tonight, would you actually be encouraged to sit back and talk with a counselor? Would you like, not leave this place without having that conversation with, uh, with a leader and just asking questions, sharing what is going on in your life? And for those who are Christians who maybe feel like convicted by things that you're doing or that you're not doing, uh, let me just remind you that the life of the Christian is filled with confession and conviction and repentance. That is normal for the Christian life. But don't leave this place without doing that if you need to. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you save lives. Lord, it is not just a story in a book that we read about in Nineveh, but you are doing this today. There are people that are stepping into your kingdom because you have offered yourself to us. God, we could do nothing to earn it. There is nothing we could have done. And yet you have freely given. And we thank you that you are one that is celebrated today and for the rest of eternity because of the gift you have offered us. God, you are too good to us. And we thank you for that. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.